tales of horror. As the sleepless hours tick past. Brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Season 15, Episode 23 of the No Sleep Podcast. I'm David Cummings, and now it's dark. Happy Valentine's Day. This episode is being released on the day we celebrate love. Those red hearts full of that warm, sticky blood that runs down our chin when we tear lustfully into the warm flesh of... I mean, red hearts, chocolates, flowers, and all that other lovey-dovey inane sentimentality. Our tales this week all speak of love and the dark things that happen as a result of it. So whether you're alone or have your sweetheart by your side, settle in and enjoy the love we put into bringing these tales to life for you. And now, let's begin our journey down this lost highway. In our first tale, we meet a couple who have been in love for decades. But with age comes the struggles of body and mind failing. As we learn in this tale from author Charlie Williams, the couple plays road games on their travels, a fun way of keeping their minds sharp. I join Mike Delgadio, Nicole Doolin, and Peter Lewis in performing this tale. So keep on the lookout and keep score in The Roadkill Diaries. Harry, there's a raccoon. That's a 20-pointer. Melba reached for the leather-bound diary and pen in the plastic pocket of the passenger side door. 25. Of course, 25. My goodness, I'm getting so forgetful. Harry's eyes left the road and looked lovingly at his wife of 48 years as she recorded the score in her journal. He knew something was wrong when she put her laptop in the refrigerator three years ago. Melba's condition was not an unexpected guest. Both of her parents had begun to show signs of dementia in their late 70s. He was a fresh one. Poor fellow is probably out looking for a hot date. The Roadkill Diaries were inspired by a morbid game Harry and Melba played during long road trips. The retired couple enjoyed the scenic pleasures of traveling by car spending the better part of the last 10 years driving all over the United States. They preferred destinations off the beaten path and often found themselves on the back roads of rural America. They encountered every type of roadkill imaginable. It was Melba's idea to keep track of their sightings and assign point values based on the rarity of the creature. Every trip was documented with descriptions of mangled animals and a point tally, 
The journal was also a catalyst for Melba's disappearing memory, helping her recall the pair's adventures over the past decade. What was that thing we just saw? Melba's struggles with short-term memory had worsened in the last month. It was a raccoon, honey. The one with the bandit's mask. Harry's wife nodded and smiled, writing the name down quickly before she forgot. Harry piloted the Mercedes through the Sierra Nevada foothills, cruising at 10 miles below the speed limit. He had made reservations at a bed and breakfast nestled in the shadows of the Stanislaus National Forest. It was only a three-hour drive from their home in Murphy's Landing. Melba, are you getting hungry? How about dinner at that little Mexican restaurant in Colombia you like so much? There's a black and white thing. Lord, it stinks. Mmm. Melba pointed excitedly at the flattened remains of a skunk on her side of the road. How many points for that? It's a skunk, dear. They're pretty common, so it's just worth ten points. Harry turned off the main highway and drove to the small Gold Rush town. He parked in a gravel lot behind the city hotel and helped Melba, still clutching her diary, get out of the car. Gonna be a beautiful night, ain't it? The sun was starting to disappear beneath the oak trees bordering the west side of the parking area. Harry shielded his eyes from the glare. A man with a dirt-smudged face and uneven teeth sat in a dented Chevy pickup, smiling and resting his arm on the open driver's window. Another man sat stoically beside him. Good evening. Yes, I think it will be. Harry took his wife's arm and guided her around the Mercedes. Melba twisted away from his grasp like a petulant child. Do I know him? No, Melba. He's just someone making polite conversation. Let's go get something to eat, okay? Maybe we should see what he wants. He's just being nice, hun. Harry gently took his wife's hand. The man spoke from the pickup. Nice car. <laughs> something wrong with the lady? Just a little confused. Harry and Melba moved past the truck and walked across the street. He turned and glanced over his shoulder as they entered the patio of the restaurant, realizing how vulnerable they appeared. Harry was relieved to see the men gone after dinner. He unlocked the car from Melba and walked to the back to open the trunk. He removed the 357 Smith & Wesson he always carried on their trips and tucked it into the console between the front seats. Something about the men in the pickup made him feel uneasy, and he still had a few more miles to drive. A deer! Melba pointed as Harry turned down the pitch-black road which led to the bed and breakfast. The headlights of the Mercedes found the bloated carcass of a doe that had been dragged off the road, its right legs pointing rigidly into the night. I know this one. One hundred points. Harry felt the car suddenly veer to the left, noticing the orange tire pressure light for the first time. The Mercedes shuddered, steering erratically as the indicator light changed to red and the dashboard alarm sounded. He eased the car onto the road's shoulder. What's happening? I think it's just a flat tire, honey. Wait here while I check it out, okay? He grabbed a flashlight from the glove compartment and inspected the tire. He heard a faint hissing sound and found a small slash in the sidewall just below the tread. He rushed to the driver's side, reaching the door handle just as a pair of high beams blinded him from behind. He flung the door open and reached for the console. Stay right there, Gramps. 
thought that damn tire was never gonna go flat. The man with the dirty face walked towards Harry, pointing a shotgun. His partner followed casually behind him. Harry stepped away from the car and held his empty hands out at his sides. Oh, we just want your wallet and the old lady's purse, and we'll be on our way. The 357 Smith & Wesson flashed twice from the passenger side of the Mercedes, the gunshots echoing through the forest canopy. The two men crumpled to the ground and lay still. Harry ran to the open car door. Melba sat with a diary already in her lap, the gun wafting smoke beside her. Oh, Harry, they've got to be worth at least 2,000 points. When you have a faulty appliance, the first step is usually to call the company helpline, right? That's what Chantel did. And as we learn from author Lex Noteboom, the service rep is very thorough with her questions, a little too thorough and unsettlingly personal. Performing this tale are Wafia White, Jessica McAvoy, Nicole Doolin, and Dan Zapula. So don't let anyone tell you you need a man to fix things. You'll get the help you need with some good customer service. Welcome to We hope you are having a great day. Here at we are famous for our 100% customer satisfaction rate. If there's anything we can help you with, please choose the option most applicable to you. And we'll connect you with one of our talented customer service managers. Press 1 if you have questions about your order's arrival date. Press 2 if you want to return a product. Press 3 if you would like to compliment a company representative on our outstanding lifetime customer service. Press 4 for all other questions or comments. A very good evening. This is Melanie calling you from the quarters. What is it I can help you with this beautiful evening? Jesus! Sorry! That was very fast. Thank you! You are one of our valued customers now, Chantal. When someone is a customer, they are a customer for life. And one of the many lifetime perks of being a customer is that you'll never have to wait a single minute for customer service again. The moment you need us, we'll be right at your doorstep, day or night. Okay, that's great. Um, so I'm calling about the dishwasher I bought last week. Yes, I can see that here. You bought a beautiful dishwasher. An excellent choice if you're forced to keep an eye on your budget. It's one of the more economic models, but it will get those dishes nice and clean for you. Well, actually, it hasn't been doing that yet. It's... Are you telling me that your dishwasher isn't working properly, Chantal? I'm afraid so. 
I've been trying to get it to start, but it won't. And I think the problem is that the door doesn't close all the way. If the door isn't closed all the way, Chantal, the dishwasher won't initiate a program. But that's a good thing if you ask me. I wouldn't want water and soap spraying all over my kitchen floor. (laughs) No, I agree. No one wants that. But what I'm trying to say is that it won't close all the way no matter how hard you push it in. All right, Chantal. So do you need us to send someone to help you push the door? What? No, of course not. I should be able to close the dishwasher myself. Yes, it would be best if you were able to close the door yourself. But if you want us to send over a strong man to help you close that door, it would be no problem. I would like you to send over someone that can fix the door. I think the door wasn't put on the machine the right way. The latch isn't aligned to the lock. Gotcha, Chantal. I'm just going to need some additional information from you so I can complete your profile. That way I can send someone out to your neck of the woods right away. Okay, that'd be great. I could- Also, I'm sorry for interrupting you right there, Chantal, but I would just like to let you know that this service will be completely free of charge. Okay, yeah, that's good. So, just to be clear, you will be paying zero American dollars for us sending someone over there to fix whatever problem is you are having this beautiful evening. Great. It doesn't matter what the problem is. We will fix it for you. Yes, that's amazing. Thank you very much. The problem here is that the dishwasher door needs to be fixed. Please help me do that. Yes, it needs to be closed properly so the dishes can get washed. I understand. So let's take a look-see here at what we've got here, Chantal. That sounds amazing, Melanie. Let's see here. You are Chantal, born in the small town of That's me. What's life like over there, Chantal? Do you like small town America? Or would you consider yourself stuck? Well, I don't mean to be rude, but I am not sure why you would ask me that. Could we please focus on getting the dishwasher fixed? I'm sorry. I didn't mean to make you feel uncomfortable there. And of course, helping you is what we are completely focused on. Let's see. You're paying for your dishwasher through a monthly payment plan. That's absolutely fine, of course. You chose the bigger unit, probably because you're not living on your own. So you're going to have to do a lot of dishes for the rest of your family, I presume. Is that a question? Yes, that's why I chose the bigger model. I have a family. How long is this going to take? Not long. It says here that you have two children, Chantal. Is that right? What? How do you even know that? It says so right here on your online profile. I just read what it says on my screen, Chantal. I'm not sure how they know these things. (laughs) Two boys, Derek and Jonathan. Derek is nine, and Jonathan is only three. Is that right? How do you know this, and why is this relevant? I don't understand why. Oh, my God. Aren't these too cute? Look at those bright little blue eyes on little Jonathan. Are you looking at pictures of my children right now? Oh, my God, Chantal. (gasps) What? It says here you lost your husband just over a year ago. I'm sorry, but I'm going to hang up the phone now. You're obviously crazy. It says here that he drove himself into a tree. What is this? Who are you? I am Melanie. My husband had a horrible car accident. 
He died after losing control and crashing into a tree. So you are a single mom? Yes, I'm a single mom, and I'm hanging up right now. That's good to know, Chantal. That completes your profile. You had to enter into my profile that I lost my husband because of a car accident? Well, let's put it this way. In our experience, women aren't usually the ones that troubleshoot appliances in the household. Men are usually the ones to figure out how technical stuff works. The ones who dare to give the old TV just the right smack without being afraid to break it. It's usually men who shove the dishwasher door into the right angle with one simple pull. This kind of information about you helps us put your problem into perspective. It helps us figure out the best way to help you. Are you saying that the problem isn't the dishwasher, but that they're not being a man in this house right now? Is that what you're saying? Well, let's be honest with each other, Chantal. If there were a man in your house, you probably wouldn't have to call me. I can't believe it. But that's not a problem at all. Because we have plenty of men here at who are more than willing to come over and help you out. That's why I've dispatched Mark, one of our top guys. Mark is real big. You wouldn't believe it. He can get any kind of door back into the latch. Hell, I'd love for him to check my latch. <laughs> if you catch my drift. <laughs> what do you mean you already sent someone out? What time is it? Oh, I've sent him out a while back. He should be... Let me check. Yes, he's at the house right now. He's upstairs, actually. Upstairs? Yes, I imagine he's checking on the boys. What? Mark will get that dishwasher door closed, no problem. He's just upstairs first, making sure the boys are okay. That way, you don't have to worry. Hello? Is anyone there? I'm calling the cops. Nine one one. What is your emergency? Yes, there's someone in my house. Did someone break in? Yes, they're inside right now. Where are you, ma'am? I'm downstairs, but he's upstairs with my kids. Someone is upstairs with your kids. Yes, I need help right now. I'm all alone. You don't have a husband, ma'am. No, I don't. Well, not anymore. Did your husband kill himself because of you, ma'am? What? Did your husband get so tired of you not being able to get anything done around the house without asking for help that he drove himself right into a tree? What is this? Just kidding, Chantal. Don't worry. It was just me, Melanie, from I think we got disconnected there for a second. But I managed to trace your phone number just in time. So we're all good. What? I... How... Tell your guy to come down and leave my kids alone. It would be best if you could please stay on the line, Chantal. That way we can get your problem fixed as fast as possible. Tell your guy to come down right now. Stay on the fucking line, Chantal. Do you hear me? If you hang up on me one more time, I will have Mark rip off one of little Jonathan's arms, and I'll have him tell Derek to try and stick it back on again before his brother bleeds to death. Do you understand me? Okay. okay. 
please, I... We have a 100% customer satisfaction rate. And I'm not going to be the first customer happiness manager to fuck that up. So there are two options here. One, we are going to fix this problem you have in your life. Two, we are going to end your life altogether. Got it? Yes. So what'll it be? Let's please fix the problem. Great. Now Mark will come down to have a look at your dishwasher while we go ahead and complete that profile of yours. Okay. Oh my god. He's so big. He's... He can't even stand up straight in here. Yes, like I said, (laughs) Mark is one of our biggest guys. Perfect for a case like yours. Please. Please go away. Please leave. What's wrong, Chantal? Where are his eyes? He doesn't have eyes. He's so big. What is he? Can I please go upstairs to check on my boys? Your boys will be fine, Chantal. Don't worry about them. Help! Help me, someone! Don't do that, Chantal. Come on. I'll stop. I'm sorry. Make him stop. We agreed to solve this problem together, remember? So let's do that. I'm looking forward to getting you back to 100% satisfied. Yes, okay. So let's do that. Let's fix the dishwasher. Like I said, Chantal, if I take a look at your profile, I don't think the problem is that you aren't strong enough to get the door back into the latch. I think the problem is that you don't have a man in your life. (sighs) Have you been on any dates since your husband died? Yes, I did. One date was some asshole trying to get laid as fast as possible. That was... Billy... Yes? I see. Billy wouldn't be a suitable partner, I'm afraid. What else have you been trying to do to find a new man? Nothing. I don't have time. I work and I have the boys. I completely understand, Chantal. But don't you think you would be a better mom to your children if there was a man in your life? Of course. So, what we could do here is just go ahead and find you a suitable man. That way we solve all your current problems. You can't do that. That's impossible. Impossible is a word we don't use over here at We always find a solution to our customers' problems, no matter how difficult. Robert was perfect. Robert was the perfect man. But he drove right into a fucking tree, so there's nothing left of him. There's nothing there anymore. Where he used to be, there's nothing. It's just emptiness. I see, Chantal. Of course, thinking the one partner you had in your life was the only perfect companion out of all the people on this planet is a ridiculous notion. It's just a self-deluding construct. A shield created by your subconscious to protect you from the terrifying prospect of being vulnerable enough again. To be able to truly connect with another human being. Completely revealing yourself and thus having to face who you are right now. That's scary. It's easier to pretend true love is lost forever. You pick long, throbbing sadness over short, stinking pain. You don't understand. He was the only one. 
Am I correct to assume that you live with the misguided but nonetheless strong conviction that there is only one way to fill the void in your house and your soul, and that is to be reunited with Robert? No one can ever replace him. All right. Then I think we should go ahead and reunite the two of you. What? Chantal, I would like to thank you very much for calling and it was my honor and privilege to help you today. I'm going to leave you in the capable hands of Mark, who's going to reunite you with Robert. Since we arrived at only one possible solution to your problem, I'm going to go ahead and complete your profile with a five-star rating. Mark will take it from here. Thank you for calling where we strive for nothing short of 100% customer satisfaction. Please note that this call may have been recorded for educational or monitoring purposes. probably know about those photo apps which will alter a portrait to show what you look like when you're older. Usually just harmless fun, right? Well, as we discover in this tale, shared with us by author Brandon McNulty, a group of friends in a band decide to try an aging app, only to discover that it's disturbingly accurate. Performing this tale are Aaron Lillis, Kyle Akers, and Matthew Bradford. So don't let aging apps mess with your head. You'll be fine if you don't concern yourself with a 10-year photo. Never should have clicked on 10-year photo. We first came across it a decade ago, back in 09, when I shared a ratty college apartment with my bandmates Tony and Shane. I was head bitch of our metal group, and while Tony was a reliable bassist, Shane usually ignored his drums and hit computer keys instead. Big mistake. The habit led him to 10-year photo and its simple three-step concept. Upload a photo, click submit, and see your future. If you had one. Our first upload was Tony's ex-girlfriend. She was your typical pre-law babe, wrapped up in preppy clothes and drenched in sunny blonde highlights. Heavy makeup, lots of jewelry. The type that scrunched her nose at my white girl dreadlocks, my tattoos, my Megadeth tank tops. Shane and I couldn't stand her, so we found a picture of her and hit upload. Then we waited. A yellow loading bar inched across the screen. Beneath it was a logo. It depicted a man's head with two faces looking in opposite directions. Next to it were the words, powered by Janus. It's gonna take all night. Shane's room always gave me a headache for one reason or another. Tonight it was the smell of burnt popcorn in the trash and the neon green blaze of the rolling rock sign hanging above his computer. That, plus the fact that he didn't have his gear ready for rehearsal. A little patience, okay? 
Sorry, none left. At least not for this goddamn joke site. It's not a joke, Ash. You weren't listening. Shane swiveled in his chair, sending his tie into a pendulum-like swing across his shirt. He was fresh off a job interview, which he bombed, and his unruly red hair was gelled down hard. He drummed his fingers over a briefcase in his lap. This site is deep web shit. Supposedly it takes any photo and shows what the person will look like in ten years, with spot-on accuracy. I groaned. Admit it, Ash, you want to see what 2019 holds for you. Maybe your music career will finally rise from the shitter. <laughs> you want to eat your keyboard? He yelled for Tony as the loading bar hit 100%. For a moment, the screen froze. Then up popped a picture of Tony's ex, only this time her flawless face was a tug-of-war battle between wrinkles and laugh lines. <laughs> Recognize her, Tony. Tony hunched forward and squinted, his long rocker hair swishing over his cheeks. His smooth face was more boy band than metal band, but one look at the screen had his eyes burning like black fire. That's supposed to be Lindsay? Seriously? Piss off, Shane. Shane explained the site's concept to him. Come on, don't you guys think Lindsay will look like this in 2019? I mean, she burns through like 60 camel lights a day. And plus. Tony left. He didn't want to hear it, and I didn't blame him. Shane, grab your drums and quit acting like a fucking 12-year-old. There's an idea, Ash. Get me a picture of yourself when you were 12. Then we can test it. I slammed the door on my way out. Since our music was too loud for the neighbor's sanity, we had to rehearse between the damp walls of the apartment basement. Or at least, when all three of us showed up, we did. That night, I spent 20 minutes alone with my Gibson Les Paul, taking out my frustration on the fretboard and sending up a series of howling notes before anyone joined me. Tony eventually came down, snuck a bite from my half-eaten cheeseburger sitting atop one of the washers. When I called him out on it, he stammered through an apology until I tore open the Burger King bag and tossed him a fresh double cheddar. Take it. Got it for free anyway. <laughs> you forgot to pay again? Ah, some zit-nosed cashier called me a Joan Jet wannabe. So I went bitch to the manager, told her sorry wasn't enough of an apology. That's our girl. Nobody's girl. Minutes rounded the basement clock. I shredded through warm-up riffs while watching for Shane in the stairwell. My fingers stampeded down the frets while my pick hand chopped at the strings until one of them snapped. And then I snapped. I flung my Gibson onto a dryer, fell in the basement with a gong-like echo accompanied by a six-string twangy dissonance, and I just went for the stairwell. Tony cut me off and we got into a shoving contest that ended with his cheek scraping the cinder block wall. He wiped the blood with the collar of his Slayer t-shirt. Jesus, Ash. Shane's always late. What's your deal? I licked my thumb and wiped a red smear off his cheek. Never this late. He's pulling this shit to piss me off. It's probably the interview. In case you lost count, that's the eighth straight one he's bombed. Cut him a break, will ya? Back upstairs, the apartment was pitch dark, aside from a neon green line beneath Shane's door. 
A gloomy Nine Inch Nails song screeched inside. I tried the knob. It spun, but the door was stuck. One hit from my shoulder knocked it loose. Shane jumped at the sight of us. He shut his briefcase and tossed it in the corner near a Christmas tree decorated with crushed beer cans. On his desk was a baggie of coke that he stuffed into a drawer. Grab your drums. In a bit. Now! Shane sank into his computer chair and nodded at his screen. Still waiting on that picture of you from ten years ago. Cut the shit! We got a gig tomorrow! Why the hell should I care? Come on, man. Ash needs us, and we need money. Shane spoke as if I wasn't there. (sighs) You think we matter to her? Then why did she run off and fuck the lead singer of Under Ice? Tony glanced at me. What? That was a mistake! I was blind drunk that weekend! Yeah, well, not blind enough to miss that post on their website about needing a guitarist. Way to cheat on our band, man. Oh, fuck off! I'm too talented to screw my way into a band. Grab your drums. I'll grab my drums when you grab me that photo. God damn it, Shane! Enough with the tenure- Tony stepped between us. Chill. Both of you. I got an old photo album under my bed. Ash, come give me a hand. Tony's room was somehow messier than Shane's, with Aussie posters peeling off the walls, a dead plant sprouting out of a desk drawer, and Snickers wrappers swamping the carpet. We squatted near the bed, and fuck did it reek hard of cigarettes. Tony dug out old music mags, chipped bongs, and a stack of LSAT books with yellowed pages. I asked him when he was retaking the LSATs, and he ignored me. Among his findings was a dust-caked guitar case with a gold Fender logo branded into the lid. Since when do you own a Fender? Tony shrugged as if it were no big deal. I couldn't understand why he'd keep it stashed while playing away at that cheapo one he'd had since sophomore year. The excavation ended in success. Tony flipped open a leather photo album to the older photos. He slid one loose. A picture of his cute boy band face at age 12, wearing a white button-down and a reindeer pattern tie. Always an ugly bastard, even then. Pack up my junk while I run this to Shane. Instead of packing, I flipped through his photos and saw one of an older guy, maybe 40-ish, playing a Fender bass on stage at what looked like a church bazaar. I eyed the guitar case near the bed. Tony was still jawing with Shane in the other room, so I popped open the guitar case. The fender gave off an eerie black shine beneath a ceiling light. Two tattered Led Zeppelin decals were peeling near the pickups. The base of the guitar was smudged with grimy fingerprints. I lifted the bottom of my tank top to wipe them. Don't. I jumped. Tony stood in the doorway, glaring at me as if I'd tried to rob him. Killer bass. It was my dad's. My mouth turned to cotton. Tony shut the case, glaring at me. I tried to explain when Shane yelled from down the hall. Guys, hurry! The loading bar was at 98% when Tony and I swung in. Shane poked a pipe between his lips and hit it. 
he exhaled a warm, sweet cloud. Moment of truth right here. The loading bar disappeared. The screen went black. Everything froze. Even the mouse wouldn't budge. Shane threw up his hands in frustration. Then the screen flashed, black to white. From the top down, an image loaded, and into view came shaggy, dark hair. Tony's face appeared, looking almost exactly as he did now. It even showed the scrape on his cheek. Tony and Shane lowered their jaws, shocked. Right. Real funny, guys. Shane blinked. This is funny to you? I pushed Tony's hair aside and revealed the scrape on his cheek. You took that picture just now while I was in his room. I turned to Tony and jabbed him in the ribs. The future lawyer falsifying evidence? They should disbar your ass. Ash, we didn't. Then the loading finished. It left me speechless. At the bottom, his neck was hulking through the collar of the kitty shirt. The top button had torn loose, and his reindeer tie hung askew. Tony had grown. His clothes hadn't. Rehearsal went nowhere. Shane swatted drums, Tony thumbed his bass. The more distant they grew, the more I second-guessed my skepticism about that website. Ten-year photo... Powered by Janus. A decade in one click. While there was image alteration software readily available, no way could Shane Dr. Tony's shirt and tie like that, not in three minutes. But if they weren't pranking me, what did that say about the website? And what was Janus? A person? A company? Some hush-hush government group? We ended up back in Shane's room, the popcorn stench fading as Shane toked his pipe. Tony agreed to upload a picture of his mom from that same Christmas collection. In it, Photo Mom wore a tight candy cane sweater and looked awfully thin, much thinner than the globby, hammock-chinned woman Tony introduced me to during homecoming week. The three of us mauled a six-pack of cores while Photo Mom loaded. Shane downed his beer seemingly in one gulp and reached for a second. Tony leaned in when the loading bar hit 100%. Once again, it froze, this time longer than the last. Part of me prayed that Janus ran out of power. The screen flashed. Tony's mom appeared, brow wrinkled and cheeks ballooning. She looked as plump as her current self, but what shocked us was the sweater. That candy cane sweater fit Photo Mom fine, but now her chunky arms stretched the fabric like fishnets, with her suffocating pink skin poking through. Maybe it was the booze, but I started laughing. I had to. I needed to believe it was a joke. Shane joined in, the two of us howling. Tony, not so much. Shane, upload my dad next. Shane and I traded a look. The humor slid off our faces. Tony told me about his dad one night when he was drunk and I was pretending to be. 
The last time he saw his old man, the guy was in a hospital bed, a thin blanket covering his bumpy ribs and jagged knees. Worse yet, with all the IV stands and monitors around, Tony couldn't give his old man a goodbye hug. For a brief moment, his dad stirred, noticed him, and lifted a scrawny hand above the bed railing. Tony reached out, and right before their fingers brushed, his dad's arm fell short and hung there. Right now, Tony's eyes held the same glossy stare as when he told me that story. Except this time, there was a sick, wistful hope in them. No doubt he was cycling through the what-if scenarios. What if his dad beat the cancer? What if he regained weight? What if he were here now? The loading bar hit 99%. Tony's throat hiked in his neck. I knew I had to get him out of the room, away from the computer. Seeing it would tear him apart. I pinched his elbow, but he shook me off and leaned over the monitor. The loading finished. The screen froze for several minutes. Nothing happened. Nothing, nothing, nothing. I cleared my throat to say something. <clears throat> but when my mouth opened, no words fell out. The screen flashed. Black to white and back to black. There was no picture. Just one word. Error. The bottle went frigid in my grasp. A numbness spread up my arm. I knew I was supposed to say something, but I was never the consoling type, and now seemed an impossible time to start. Shane finally broke the silence. Want me to re-upload? Tony left the room. Water flushed non-stop from the bathroom sink. I listened with my ear pressed to the door. Never had Tony needed a moment alone more, but I couldn't trust him with total solitude. The look on his face when that error message hit was something out of hell. And while us rockers were headed there, it wouldn't be tonight. There came a final splash of water and the slap of a towel. He coughed a few times and the bathroom tiles creaked. He was leaving, he was okay, thank Christ. I hurried away to the kitchen and grabbed another six-pack. When he started down the hall, I stepped out all casual, bottles rattling at my side. He tried ignoring me on his way to the front door, but I stopped him. So, Shane's ideas can be shitty sometimes, huh? He didn't reply. Just swallowed. He smelled of sweat and soap. His hair shining wet in the light from the kitchen. His eyelids were swollen and red. Before I could stop myself, I snared him in a hug. The bottles clinked behind him as I squeezed tight. He trembled, his cheek moist against my forehead. It took him a second to register what was going on, and then his head slid across my back, bumping my bra as his palm meshed against my spine. We pulled back, still in each other's grasp. I wiped a wet clump of hair from his face, brushed a couple stray dreadlocks from mine. I froze. His lips plunged toward mine. I shrank away. Let's not turn this into days of our lives, okay? He stammered something about heading out to the bar, but I, I couldn't let him leave. Not with that broken look in his eyes. I steered him by the shoulders back toward Shane's room. 
Maybe not the best therapy, but not the worst either. Shane's uploading me next. You don't want to miss this. Not if I burn out and end up looking like some knocked up Pat Benatar. The loading bar shot across the months, the seasons, the years. I wasn't doing this for Tony, not entirely. Sure, it was an excuse to keep him home, but the truth was I needed to know where I was headed. I've been dragging my fingers down guitar strings since kindergarten, and every time I closed my eyes, I saw myself on stage in front of assloads of loyal fans. If that life was coming, it'd be written all over my future self's face. At 100%, I nudged Tony. He was staring at a crack in the wall, still mixed up about his dad and our non-kiss. Another nudge broke his trance. The screen flashed. I braced myself for the big moment. It flashed again and I saw a stranger. A bald, baggy-eyed stranger with shriveled tattoos webbing her neck and shoulders. The tough metal chick was gone, replaced by a heroin-thin banshee who probably hadn't slept in a decade. Shane threw his head back, laughing, and Tony snorted into his sleeve. I leaned over the keyboard, my mouth tasting of dust. How could I go bald at 32? Tony went next, apparently loosened up enough by my shitty outcome. When his future arrived, I forced myself to laugh. Somewhere before his 32nd birthday, he got himself a crew cut and went gray in the process. I joked about the long hours of lawyering in his future. He didn't laugh. Afterwards, Shane clicked out of the program. The fuck, Shane? If we can look like dog shit, so can you. Tomorrow, maybe. Let's, uh, let's hit the bar. I looked to Tony. Grab him. Tony pinned Shane to his chair and rolled him away from the keyboard. Shane whined and moaned, his voice growing childishly desperate as I uploaded a recent picture of him. The loading bar chugged along while the guys slammed each other into a bookcase crammed with PS3 games and Tom Clancy paperbacks. They thrashed around until Shane landed on his stomach and tried crawling toward the computer. I took a seat on his back and stamped him against the floor. Ash, please, I don't want to see it. When the loading bar struck 100%, I climbed off. He scrambled to his feet, diving after the computer. His hand bumped the mouse and knocked it back behind the monitor. He fumbled for it, spasm like I'd never seen him. By the time he wrestled the mouse back down, everything flashed. Black to white, and back to black. Error. kitchen felt like the only place left on earth. I don't know why we picked the kitchen after Shane threw us out of his room, but we did. Tony and I sat with our backs to the fridge, its stainless steel sending chills through my tank top. The floor was sticky from old soda. A wet stench of used coffee grounds hung in the air. Now and then, the light above the sink flickered and the faucet dripped. Everything else seemed hollow and motionless. We started drinking, and a small forest of empty bottles arose between us. We kept going to the last beer. Want to split it? 
Tony lumbered to his feet. I think I'll go check on Shane. Don't. It's gotta be winding down now. There's only like 80 photos on his computer. What, you take an inventory? <laughs> I snorted. Tony sat back down. He squeezed the lid off the last cores and offered it to me. What about you? You alright? I scratched at my dreadlocks to make sure they were still there. I've been twirling them like a circus act ever since we sat down. Any minute now, I expected them to pop loose and slither away. Tony was no better. I caught him checking his reflection in the chrome door handle, probably afraid the color would leak from his hair any second. I was pretty goddamn bald in that photo. Tony shrugged. Who knows, maybe I'll get sick of my dreads and shave them. Try a new look, go all punk. Yeah, maybe. I had didn't look shaved, though. Tony frowned. Does anyone in your fi- Never mind. When he looked away, I shoved him. What? Go on. Say it. There was a long pause. Only the faint rumble of the fridge and the buzz of the light sounded. He frowned and said, I was gonna ask if anyone in your family had, you know, cancer. Hearing it sobered the night's booze right out of me. I took his cores off him and knocked it back. The beer hit my throat like a blessing. I handed it back and told him about my Aunt Kay. You mentioned her one night when you were wasted. Something about her and your Gibson? My Gibson was hers originally. She babysat me a lot, gave me guitar lessons. Then when I was seven, the lessons stopped. My dad said she had to go on tour. I was thrilled for her. I thought she joined Metallica or something. But it wasn't that kind of tour. Tony set his hand on mine. I didn't budge. His hand, its warmth, it felt like it needed to be there. Last time I saw her, she was lying in her apartment bed. As soon as I walked in, she told me her Gibson was mine now. I ran to hug her, all excited. When I threw myself over her chest, something wasn't right. He raised an eyebrow. See, Aunt Kay had these huge boobs. I expected them to be there. I shook my head, sighed. She had a double mastectomy. Not that it saved her. Tony brushed the back of my hand with his thumb. I reached for the beer as an excuse to free myself. He cleared his throat. Nobody in my family went gray until their 50s. Nobody in your family stresses out like you. Every time I see you with those LSAT books, I want to pelt you with Xanax. I made a throwing motion with my wrist, and we laughed. Sounds like I should pull the plug on law school. Oh, fuck no. I'll need a good lawyer when I start touring. Remember, I'm good for a stage riot, or 30. We laughed until our tired heads thumped against the fridge door. We stared back at one another, our beer-soaked breaths collecting on the stainless steel. Tony shifted toward me, his eyes fixing on mine. Our breaths overlapped on the door. He leaned in. I roadblocked him with my hand. You can do better. I might go bald tomorrow. I might go gray. He folded my hand down into his 
and I felt his breath, warm and boozy, on my nose. I closed my eyes and bent toward him. Tony and I stared at each other, wide-eyed. We wobbled to our feet in a reckless hurry, stumbled into chairs and walls on our way to Shane's room. Tony beat me to the door and tried the knob. Locked. He pounded and yelled. His urgency sent me into a drunken run, and I stumbled into him from behind. The force popped the door open, dumping us on a stacks of CDs and textbooks. Everything clattered and avalanched around us. When I twisted loose, I screamed. No! Shane lay on the floor at the foot of his chair, his face impossibly pale in the green neon. His elbow was knotted tight with his tie from the job interview. Nearby, his briefcase was butterflied open, a spoon and plastic bag lying inside. I crawled over and my knee crunched something, a used syringe. Tony, hurry, get him into the shower. Tony took Shane by the armpits while I got his legs. We dumped him in the shower and threw the water on full blast. Cold spray soaked his shirt, spreading through it like a shadow. He should have twitched by now, but he simply lay there blocking the drain. I felt powerless, useless. It was my Aunt Kay all over again. Tony stammered through a 911 call. He opened his mouth to say something, but couldn't. He slumped against the wall, sliding to the floor as the operator's tinny voice chirped through the receiver. He shook his head. No. That website had to be wrong. I climbed inside the shower and pumped my hands against Shane's stomach over and over. I slapped his face, pinched his earlobes. No response. Nothing. I went back to pumping. Tony yelled at me to keep at it, not to give up. I didn't intend to. I only stopped when the cold got to me. That was when I realized that it hadn't gotten a Shane. Today marked the 10-year anniversary of that night. I celebrated with a routine trip to the oncology ward where a nurse donned a C-list actress's smile and led me to the chemo room. It was bright inside, the sunlight warming the leather chairs the air tingling with a fake lilac freshener. What could have been a halfway peaceful visit turned hectic when I saw who was sitting inside. Nurse, can I have a minute alone? Let my stomach settle? The second she left, I squatted next to the man sitting by the window. I couldn't believe it. Tony? No response. His arm slid off the armrest and dangled there the IV tube swinging in rhythm. He smelled of sweat and worry. Probably his first chemo session. He still had his hair, after all, gray as it was. Tony, remember me? From the old apartment? He stared ahead, his breath leaking out. Somewhere in my mind, I could smell warm beer and undercooked burgers could feel his palm against my spine. Who? Ash. Ten years ago, we were in the- The website. Yeah, the website. I took his hand. 
you'll laugh, but I've become kind of addicted to it. I upload my photo every day now. But get this, I'll survive my cancer. And my hair's supposed to grow back. Guess it'll be powered by Janus. <laughs> did, did you know Janus was a Roman god? The god of time, beginnings, doorways, and... Uh... Yeah, yeah, I know it's silly. Uh, what about you, Tony? Have you been uploading yourself? No. My skin prickled at his tone. It was unfair. Here was the only guy on Earth who understood the website, Janus's power, my addiction. Maybe Tony didn't want to know if he'd be around in 2029, but I did. I snapped a picture of him and booted up 10-year photo on my phone. My thumb hovered over the upload button. Ash, don't. Why not? Why wouldn't you want to know? What if... He dozed off, his breath warm on my face. Warm as it had been in front of the fridge ten years ago. Before everything became predictable. Before everything went to shit. I checked my phone. My thumb hovered over the word upload. Instead, I hit cancel. Then I took his hand and waited. Sometimes love can make people do dark and twisted things, like the couple in this tale, shared with us by author S. Francis Chamberlain. A woman paired with her psychopathic lover crossed the country killing people for kicks. But when given a chance to break free from the murderous cycle, the woman has to make a harrowing choice. Performing this tale are Nicole Goodnight, Sarah Olivia, and Graham Rowett. So make sure you know your moral center, lest you have to deal with the price of sand. I knew we were getting sloppy, which is why this was going to be the last one. A discussion we've had on more occasions than I can remember, to be honest. But he swore it this time. Stephen, who was, unlike usual, sober as the day he was born, had held my face between his hands and promised me this would be it. But now I'm standing over another woman's body for the first time. The blood seeping through the left side of her security uniform is turning the carpet beneath her a sickening copper color. And her eyes... Wide as a doze are looking past me to the room behind us. We were planning to get out of this place, you see. On top of the weather being insufferable lately, I'd like to go someplace warm for a while, and I think Stephen's mostly on board with the idea. The unwanted attention is starting to get to us. We've targeted too many men from the same areas. We started to feel too comfortable, and I started feeling too confident. Mostly, though... 
Dear Lord, I would never say this to him. Stephen's aggression has evolved into something unmatched. It's hard to remember sometimes that it had started with nothing but the switchblade in his back pocket. The first few men were asleep, even, laying naked next to me in their beds. Stephen would come in through the unlocked door without a sound, tilt their heads back with two fingers placed under their chin, and simply slit their throats from ear to ear. I would always watch back then. Sometimes Stephen would even make love to me afterwards with them laying heavy in the mattress beside us, their blood seeping into the sheets and pooling in my hair. But lately, Stephen seems to have lost track of our goal. It was only about the money and belongings at first. Nothing personal. We dreamed of retiring young. Most of these men were older. Most of them had more money than they knew what to do with. We wanted to get as much as we could and leave as quickly as we could. But it's been much longer than planned now, and we haven't saved the money like we should have. We didn't leave when we should have. And now, Stephen practically begs me to go out and get one. And I can't say there isn't a thrill in it for me, too. But I get nervous. And with the scenes Stephen has been leaving behind lately, I know we're going to make a mistake. He always wants to hurt them now. He uses his knife, his hands. Hell, sometimes he'll just use whatever he can find around the house. Lately, when we're leaving, I don't even recognize the man who had invited me into his home in the first place. Sometimes it seems that there's nothing left but blood and meat on the floor. So when he asked me for this final one, I put on my best gown, my only one, picked out one warm summer evening with Stephen by my side. I loved that night. Then I went to the nicest bar that would let me in. It was a fancy one, but regardless, most people are there to buy drinks and get laid. And damn if I'm not good at finding the right person for the job every time. Stephen tells me it's a special talent, and who am I to argue? I remember every one of them. Maybe not the names, but the numbers, at least. This one was to be the 23rd. Not a nice, rounded number to end it on, sure. But neither of us were too broken up about it. His name was Chris. He wasn't married, and he had just moved into town on a promotion. I didn't ask his age, but I never do. He seemed lonely. Over the next two weeks, I saw him three more times. I learned about his impressive career and that he lived alone. I learned that the front door's buzzer never worked properly. Despite how much he paid in condo fees, he would often remind me. And through observation, I learned there was no doorman and no cameras in the halls and doorways. Noticing these things had become second nature. Sometimes we would carry on longer than this. Sometimes we would try to get a better grasp on the situation. But Stephen was so persistent. So was I. I'd never wanted to get it over with so quickly. I could already feel the sand between my toes somewhere far from here, and the waves in my hair as Stephen lay me down on the beach, lips against mine. So on our fourth night together, I asked Chris to bring me home with him before we had even gone for dinner. I made sure to leave the door unlocked, as per routine. I didn't have to do much. Pour us each a shot of whiskey, run my fingers down the buttons on the front of his shirt, before he was sliding his hand up my skirt and we were stumbling towards the bed together, his full weight pressing me down into the sheets. Stephen and I didn't communicate in any way during this time, but he never once showed up too early or too late. I would tell him that it's because of the connection he and I share, 
It wasn't like any other, and it's why we worked so well together. He'd always laugh, but I could tell by the look he'd give me that he felt the same. Chris was still on top of me, both hands wrapped tight around my tits and grunting, when I heard the crack and saw his eyes roll back into his head until there was nothing but white. Usually, Stephen would wait until we were done. Sometimes, he'd even watch. I pressed myself down into the bed and didn't say a word as Chris was ripped off of me and thrown like a bag of sand to the bedroom floor. Stephen hardly even acknowledged that I was there, except to tell me to start gathering up the stuff. I made my way to the living room and grabbed the duffel bag Stephen had left near the front door, beginning the task of tossing in anything that looked valuable when I heard Chris coming to from somewhere behind me. I mostly ignored this part nowadays, but sometimes curiosity got the better of me. This is one of the times I wish it hadn't. The look he was giving me from his position face down on the carpet in his own home was one of concern at first, like he truly thought that this was a random act of violence, like he thought that I was in danger too, like Stephen would be coming for me next. And then when Stephen dropped to his knees next to him and his knife began to plunge down into Chris's shoulder blades, not once or twice, but more times than I cared to count, upon noticing that I wasn't making a move to stop it, the look turned to one of pure betrayal. I wanted to reflect on this, on how someone who barely knew me thought he had trusted me enough in the first place to even feel betrayed. But the only thought in my mind was too loud. There was blood on the floor, in the doorway, and on Stephen's hands and arms and chest. He would have to wear some of Chris's clean clothes on the way out. But Chris was crying out, and Stephen was cursing at him. So by the time I heard the knocking at the front door, I figured the person had to have been there for longer than we'd have liked. That was when her meek voice drifted in through the wood. Mr. Palmer? It's Ellie, from uh, security. I have some papers here for you to sign regarding... I'm sorry, but is, is everything all right in there? Stephen had his hands pressed around Chris's mouth, looking at me with expectation. I could think of nothing to do but stand there, the half-full bag hanging heavy in my hands. She tried the door handle. Sir, if you don't respond, I'm afraid I'll have to call the authorities. I believe I heard sounds of distress. She sounded nervous. My feet felt like they had been encased in cement as I took a few steps towards the door, placing the bag down and smoothing my skirt with my palms out of nervous habit. Maybe I could flash her a smile. Tell her those weren't sounds of distress at all. Give her a wink. She sounded young. Maybe she'd blush, thrust the papers into my hands, and walk away. Maybe, when the police found Chris's body later, she wouldn't have even looked into my face long enough to give them a decent description. There was a feeling of dread, knowing for certain now that this had gone on too long. I knew we should have retired long before this, had Stephen only listened to me. And such a simple mistake... How did I not know they would have security here? So I opened the door and we caught each other's eyes. But before I could get two words out, Stephen was pushing me aside and wrapping an arm around the back of her neck. She didn't even yell out. There was a gasp, maybe. And then Stephen had already gotten his switchblade into her side twice before I had shut the door behind them. He threw her down onto the ground and there was a firm thud as her forehead hit the carpet. He stormed back to the other room. He was mad. Where the fuck did she come from? Becky, what have you done? 
Chris, whose eyes were staring ahead vacantly and whose teeth were red with blood, was taking the brunt of Stephen's frustration. He wouldn't last much longer. But this girl in front of me, well, I had never seen Stephen hurt someone like her before. Her young features looked dazed as she struggled to her knees and her security uniform was ill-fitting and hung off her small frame. She had red hair and freckled cheeks and, God, was I not immediately nostalgic for a different, long-ago time in my life as I looked her over. Her eyes fixed on Stephen standing over Chris in the other room and I was envious of the horror and repulsion I saw there. She began to cry and it made my knees weak. To cry for the man in there? When she didn't even know his name? Had I ever felt that way? Now, when our eyes finally meet, I notice that one of her shaking hands is pressed against her injured side, red seeping through her fingers, but the other is reaching for the walkie-talkie hooked to her heavy belt. I shake my head no, slowly, and for some reason this stops her. Does she, too, think that I'm an ally of some sort? A sense of shame washes over me that I've become all too familiar with lately. There's as much blood on me as there is on the man in the other room, girly. Mine's just the special, invisible kind. The kind that makes me feel like I'm somehow distanced from what's really going on. I begin to wonder if her being here isn't the accident I'd like to think it is. Chris has finally gone quiet in the other room, and Stephen joins us, wiping the blood from his hands onto his jeans in dark streaks. He tells me that he's got this, and to hurry up, to keep packing. So I walk over to the bag on the floor, but... As I stare down at it, filled with what's to be the final bit of our retirement fund, all I can hear is her pleading behind me. Please, you don't have to do this. She sounds weak. She's losing blood, I know. You weren't supposed to be here! Stephen is angry, but it's the first time I've heard his voice get like that. Is it regret I'm hearing, or just frustration? I can see from the corner of my eye that he's holding her head back with his fingers tightened around her ponytail with the tip of his knife pressed hard enough against her throat to draw blood. But he hesitates. So I don't. Suddenly a crack. He's sprawled on the floor next to her, and I'm shocked at how easily he went down, reminiscent of a sack filled with sand. I'm holding a heavy and quite expensive-looking brass lamp in my hands, and Stephen's blood is smeared on the base of it. The young, freckled girl with her red hair and baggy uniform scrambles away from him in a moment of clarity and snatches the walkie-talkie off of her belt. Her other hand is holding a can of pepper spray out towards me with a grip so firm her arm is shaking. Don't move. Don't move, she's saying to me, while intermittently yelling for the police to come quickly. All I can do is look down at her in speculation. Is this really her fault? Or did I finally realize... Seeing this impassioned youth and wondering where that part of me had gone, that this was never going to stop. That it isn't something that could just end on its own, but that had to be ended. Perhaps it's always been leading up to a lamp against the back of one of our heads. The girl on the floor, done with her call, sags back on her heels, pepper spray now loose in her hands and resting on the floor next to her. I lean against the wall beside the front door and wait for the police to come crashing in. An unexpected thought crosses my mind briefly as I watch her labored breathing. I hope she makes it. And I hope Stephen will, too. He deserves his retirement as much as I do.
In our final tale, we are confronted with what it's like to grow up under the shadow of bullying and homophobia. The slurs, the attacks, all so hurtful and dark. But as we learn in this tale, shared with us by author Ryan Peacock, Jane used to be one of those people who attacked the quiet, shy artist, Megan. But when Jane finally starts to defend Megan, she becomes bullied as well. That is, until the bullies start to mysteriously disappear. Performing this dark tale are Sarah Thomas, Mary Murphy, Wafia White, Jessica McAvoy, Nicole Doolin, and Kyle Akers. So don't assume the quiet ones are merely meek and easy targets. You'll learn that the hard way if you go after Space Girl. Her real name was Megan Daniels, but nobody actually called her that. Since second grade, she'd always been Space Girl. She was the kind of kid who stuck out in the crowd, with her long red hair, ghostly pale skin, and Coke bottle glasses that hid the coldest blue eyes I'd ever seen. For as long as I'd known her, Space Girl had been quiet. She didn't like to be around us. She didn't play with us when we were kids. She didn't even talk much. Most of the time, she'd find somewhere to sit, far away from everyone else. Then she'd open up her little notebook and scribble inside of it. Sometimes she wrote poems, sometimes she drew. But she was always off in her own little world. Nowadays, I understand why we targeted her. She was different, and she was alone. That doesn't justify any of it, but kids can be cruel. I remember that it was Sasha Brown who told me that Space Girl was retarded because her mother was on drugs. Thinking back on it, Sasha had probably just made that up. But we all believed it anyways. She had always been the worst towards Space Girl, and she kept that up until the end. I can't pinpoint one particular moment where everything started to go downhill, but the moment I remember best is when Sasha took her notebook. It was sometime in fifth grade. It had been raining that day, so we had an indoor recess. Space Girl sat in the corner at her desk, eyes focused on her notebook as she methodically worked on a drawing. Sasha and I had been sitting nearby, and we simply just watched her do her thing. I can't believe they let that retard sit in with us. Look at her. Why do they even let them in schools? They aren't going to learn anything. Better than leaving her at home with her crackhead mother. That was Tanya Everett. She and I weren't exactly friends, but she sat close to Sasha and I. My dad says he sees a different car in front of her house every day. He says that she lets boys come, and they pay her so they can have S-E-X. None of us could actually say the dreaded S-word at the time. Sex was still a terrible, unknown thing, and we all had been raised to believe that nobody decent would ever do it. 
Space Girl paused and her eyes darted away from her book to look at us. I can only imagine she'd heard us. Sasha just stared right back at her. What? Do you have a problem, Space Girl? The teacher was out of earshot, and that gave her carte blanche to say whatever she wanted. Space Girl didn't respond. She just looked back down at her notebook, but Sasha had been challenged. Or at least she thought she'd been. She looked over to the teacher's desk to make sure she was busy. Then she got up and moved closer to Space Girl. What are you even doing in there, retard? She reached out to snatch the book before Space Girl could stop her. What even is this? A unicorn? What are you, five? She handed the book to me and I took it on instinct. There was a brightly colored drawing of a unicorn inside. The artwork was actually pretty nice, but I would have never said so. The book was passed on to Tanya next, and Space Girl could only look at us helplessly. Wow, you can't even draw. Look at this. She tore the page out of the notebook, and Space Girl let out a whimper of protest, as if she'd just been struck. The picture was crumpled up, and the book was thrown on the floor by her desk. Draw something that isn't trash next time. <laughs> Sasha just giggled, as if it was anything other than being mean-spirited just for the sake of it. Space Girl slowly picked up her book off the floor, avoiding eye contact as Tanya and Sasha turned away from her. I continued to stare. I remember that the way she moved was so defeated, as if she were shrinking in on herself. She looked up at me, but only for a moment, and I felt bad for her. I really did. But I didn't do anything about it. I just left her to rejoin the others. After that... Space Girl became an easy target for Sasha and Tanya. Every chance they got, they'd harass her. And I regret to admit that I was usually right there with them. During the days where we could go outside for recess, Space Girl would always sit beneath the same tree, and she'd always be working in her notebook. Sometimes, Sasha, Tanya, and I would just go and stand by her tree to hang out. Sasha would always lean on the trunk and look down over Space Girl's shoulder. Wow, that's really good, Space Girl. Did you mean to draw it like it got hit by a truck? Or is that just your style? There was never a compliment. She would always find something to needle, and she would do it over and over again until finally Space Girl moved. Then we'd follow her harassing her about her work. Most of her art was fantastical. She liked unicorns, detailed kingdoms in the clouds, fairies, mermaids, and things like that. She didn't deserve the treatment we gave her, but she got it anyways. Can you draw me? I heard that retards were like art geniuses or something. Maybe it'll even look like a person. 
space girl didn't look up at her. She seemed to be trying not to acknowledge the insults. Usually, Sasha and Tanya didn't care. Although every now and then they'd steal her book just to thumb through it, make fun of everything she'd drawn, or just tear out the pages. I won't pretend like I was blameless either. I never stopped them, and there were plenty of times where I was right there, making fun of her because that was what we did. We made fun of Space Girl, and we weren't the only ones. More or less everyone hurt her in some way or another. But she never complained. I think she was too scared to. It was late December in seventh grade where things got even worse. I don't know all the details and I don't know just for how long things had been boiling over, but I'd heard a rumor that James Hardy had it out for Space Girl. James had only been in my class a few times, and he wasn't in my class that year. He was a small, mousy-looking kid who was convinced he was the world's toughest gangster. By the time we were 12, he was dressed in loose basketball jerseys and jeans that sagged. He was as wide as they came, but he listened to censored Eminem, so that made him a gangster. The rumors said that someone had seen his dad going into Space Girl's house. Naturally, there had been speculation that his dad was sleeping with her mom. Someone told me that James's parents had been divorcing because of it. Somehow, all of these rumors had mutated into claims that James and Space Girl were dating, and I think that was what had rubbed him the wrong way. We were coming in from recess when some boys decided to pull a little prank on James. The whole prank had been set up by Brian Jordan and his brother Mike. They had some mistletoe for the holiday season, and had set it up in the hall leading back to our classroom. Mike had grabbed Space Girl during recess and was holding her behind the door where the mistletoe was. When James walked through, they pushed her at him and snapped a picture. I'd been just behind James when it happened. I watched as Space Girl came flying out of seemingly nowhere, eyes wide and afraid as she crashed into James. They both hit the ground, and I could hear the other boys laughing. <laughs> Look, she wanted to give you a kiss. Space Girl was trying to crawl away from James and pick up her notebook, but somebody had kicked it out of sight. I remember that she looked back towards James, and there were tears in her eyes. She must have been terrified with everything that was going on. She clearly hadn't wanted any part in this, but there she was at the center of it. James yelled as he picked himself up, along with some other slurs I won't repeat. Hey, she just wanted to give you a smooch. Come on, give her a kiss. Someone pushed Space Girl towards James, and he glared at her as if this was all her fault. She tried to stand and run, but he was angry and he wasn't thinking straight. He lashed out at her with a square punch to the jaw. Then he tossed her to the ground and went after Brian next. A teacher had to get in to pull James off him. He, Space Girl, and the Jordan brothers ended up getting suspended right before the Christmas holidays. We didn't see Space Girl until January. We didn't see James or his friends ever again.
On Christmas Eve, there was a car accident on the highway outside of town. Supposedly, the vehicle had swerved off the road to avoid an animal of some kind and gone into a ditch. Mike, Brian, and their parents didn't survive. On December 27th, James was killed while outside shoveling his driveway. My parents told me that he'd been attacked by an animal, probably a deer or something. But that seemed so unusual. I'd never heard anything about deer attacking people before, especially not in my area. I went over to Sasha's house on the day before New Year's. We'd both gotten some gift cards for Christmas, and we were planning to walk to the mall together to use them. Sasha's parents weren't home. They both had to work. So it was just us when I got there. Hey, kept me waiting. Sorry. It's fine. I'll be ready in a bit. Come on upstairs. I want to show you something. I didn't question what it was. I figured it was just something else she'd gotten for Christmas, so I went upstairs with her. You're gonna love it. It's gonna be so funny. She led me to her bedroom, and as soon as she opened the door, I spotted a familiar notebook on her desk. Where did you get this? Space Girl dropped it when Brian and her brother pulled that prank the other day. I saw it, so I grabbed it. You know, just for safekeeping. She cracked a wry grin before opening the notebook. Look at this. She's been drawing the same damn unicorns forever. She didn't even finish this one. She paused at one small picture that was labeled the Unicorn Prince. It depicted an empty field with a blank space where the titular prince should have been. Sasha flipped through the pages a little more until she got to the newer ones. I figured since they kicked Space Girl out for a little while, and her mom is too poor to get her anything for the holidays, I'd step up. What do you think? Sasha wasn't anywhere near as good of an artist as Space Girl was but the simple detail in what she had drawn turned my stomach. In her first picture, Space Girl was hanging from a rope. Her tongue was hanging out and her eyes were closed. In the second one, Space Girl had a gun in her mouth. In the third one, she was standing on the edge of a building. Sasha giggled as I flipped through her crude depictions of suicide. A bottle of pills getting hit by a car, slitting her wrists. (laughs) What do you think? I bet she'll lose her shit. I closed the notebook and looked over at Sasha. Why was she so happy with this? How did she not realize what she was doing? Uh, Are you out of your mind? Sasha's grin faded. What do you mean? You stole her notebook just so you could draw these? Sasha, that's really messed up. It's Space Girl. Who the hell cares about Space Girl, Jane? I took the book off her desk. You just 
drew her killing herself over and over again. How don't you understand what's wrong with that? Sasha just stared at me like I was crazy. Maybe I was crazy, but not for drawing the line there. I was crazy for not drawing it sooner. Fine. Sue me for trying to be funny. Just give it here. She outstretched a hand to take the notebook, but I pulled back from her. No, you're just going to put something else in there. Anger flared in Sasha's eyes. Jane, just give me the book. No, I don't trust you. I opened the book and started to tear out those pages of Space Girl's suicide. Sasha lunged for me, trying to grab at the book and stop me. I pushed her back. I didn't mean to push so hard, but I did, and she fell, landing hard on the ground. Sasha looked up at me, wide-eyed and shocked. I don't think anyone had laid a hand on her like that before. Then I saw something in her eyes. Not just anger. Something worse. It was the same thing that had prompted her to draw those horrible pictures of Space Girl. Slowly, she got to her feet. Her eyes trained on me. I could hear her breathing getting heavier, and I took a step back. It wasn't the first time I'd seen the really ugly side of Sasha, but it was the first time it was ever directed at me. And now that I looked into her eyes, what I saw scared me. I turned and ran, bolting down her stairs and out her front door and back into the snow. I clutched Space Girl's notebook to my chest the entire time, and I didn't let it go until I got home. I spent the rest of the Christmas break terrified that my parents would get a call from Sasha's. I pushed her and that seemed like such a big deal at the time. In hindsight, I doubt Sasha would have told her parents what had happened. They would have asked why I'd pushed her and I would have told them about the notebook. On some level, she must have known what she was doing was wrong. She was a cruel person, but there had to be a point where even she would recognize that she'd gone too far. Part of me hoped that she'd realize that I was right, and we could patch things up when school started again. But honestly, I wasn't so sure. I remember looking through Space Girl's drawings, the ones that she'd done. I remembered the ones I'd made fun of the most. There was one with a mermaid on a rock, combing her hair. Her eyes were closed in a relaxed bliss. I remember saying how stupid her facial expression had looked, but honestly, I kinda liked it. I flipped through the pages some more, through unicorns, fairies, and castles, but I paused at the page depicting the unicorn prince. Back at Sasha's place, it had been blank, but at my house it was finished. The unicorn prince stood in his field, looking skywards with his horn proudly displayed. Maybe I had been thinking of a different picture? I brushed it off and flipped to the back where Sasha's pictures were. One by one, I started tearing them out of the notebook and tossing them in the trash. It was a waste of paper, but I refused to give it back to Space Girl with those images still in it.
On the first day back to school, I was up early. I made sure the notebook was packed into my bag and was out as early as I could be. The snow on the ground was almost pristine as I walked to school, but I remember seeing some tracks on my lawn, headed down the side of my house. Deep U-shaped indents that looked like they'd been made by hooves. A deer, perhaps? I didn't dwell on them and made my way down the freshly shoveled sidewalk and back to school. I wasn't entirely sure if Space Girl would be back yet, but she was. She was alone in the classroom, sitting at her desk and drawing in a brand new notebook. She paused briefly when I walked in to join her, and I could see her side-eyeing me. She didn't say a word as I drew nearer, but I thought I saw her shoulders tense up ever so slightly. Hey, I'm... I hope you had a nice holiday. She didn't respond. She just watched me from behind her Coke bottle glasses, and I could sense the distrust radiating off of her. I'm sorry about what happened the other day. I didn't know anything about it, but it just seemed really mean-spirited. Still no answer. I reached into my backpack, taking out her old notebook. I put it on the desk in front of her. She stared at it, still silent, then back at me. Sasha took it. I was over at her house the other day and she showed it to me. I'm sorry that I had to take some pages out. She... she drew some really awful things in there. I didn't think it would be right to give it back with those things still in there. I paused, feeling smaller as Space Girl stared at me. She didn't seem angry or thankful. She didn't seem anything at all. Just stoic. I'm sorry if I wasn't all that great to you before. Then I shuffled off to my desk. Space Girl waited until I sat down before she opened her notebook and inspected it. Then she closed her new book and started something new on a fresh page in her old one. It wasn't much, but it made me feel at least a little good for what I'd done. When Sasha got in, she didn't talk to me. She didn't even look at me. Neither did Tanya or any other of our mutual friends. I knew from the moment they walked in that I'd burned my bridges with them. But I still wanted to try. The teacher hadn't come in yet, so I figured it might be worth it to try and talk to Sasha. I got up to move closer to her, and she gave me a look of utter disgust. What do you want? Now it was my turn to be silent. Fuck off and leave us alone. You'd obviously rather hang out with the fucking retard than us. And I really don't want you spreading your retard germs to us. It's a quarantine issue. <laughs> I stared at both of them, and I could have sworn I knew how Space Girl felt. What was I supposed to say to any of that? Instead, I just returned to my desk without a word. Space Girl stared at me the entire time. 
Her pencil rested over her notebook, but she didn't write anything. She set it down, tore out the page she'd been writing on, and jammed it into her pocket. I later saw her toss it into the trash during lunch. I didn't really have anyone left, so I thought that maybe it might be a good idea to pull it out. Maybe it was something she wasn't happy with? I'd never seen her throw a drawing out before. I was thinking that maybe I could use it as a peace offering of sorts, or something along those lines. Looking back on it, I'm not entirely sure what I was expecting to do with it. When I saw what she'd written on it, though, I almost threw it back into the trash. Your words. There is a land where your sorry may go, a sickening land where it always snows. The snow is putrid in color and smell. Its substance, filth, and things I won't tell. Only your father has been there before. One day your boyfriend will visit once more. This place in your carcass, this humanoid hell. Your sorry can go there to this hole in your shell. My unsubtle message, this subtextual jazz, is take your apology and stuff it up your ass. This was unlike anything I'd ever seen her write. It was so crass and spiteful. This was as close to hatred as she could have gotten. I understood why she'd thrown it out. It didn't fit with everything else she'd done. Those things had been beautiful. Despite what people had said and done to her, she still tried to make beautiful things. This was angry and ugly. This was something she'd written for me. I put it in my pocket. I wasn't going to give it back to her, but I wanted to keep it. Even if she'd thrown it away, she'd written it about me. She'd written it about the way I treated her, and I wanted to remember that. There was a service for James, Brian, and Mike a few days into the first week back. No one mentioned what had happened to them, but there were a few whispers that Space Girl had somehow been responsible. Of course, nobody actually believed it. It was more of a joke than anything else. Their deaths had been tragic accidents, supposedly. But kids would always gossip. Those three boys were more or less forgotten after seventh grade, and their prank was forgotten too. People instead chose to paint them as bright young spirits who'd been lost before their time, instead of the pieces of shit they really were. Eighth grade wasn't fun for me. I had very few friends left, and Sasha never forgave me for turning on her. Her version of the story was slowly warped as time went on. First, I'd punched her and stolen the book. Then, I'd tried to kiss her, punched her when she'd refused, then stole the book to try to get her in trouble. Rumors of me being a dyke spread pretty quickly, and hot on their heels came the rumors that I was dating Space Girl. I tried not to let them bother me too much. I knew the truth, and at the end of the day, I'd done the right thing. By the time high school rolled around, I was hoping for a fresh start. 
There were new faces, and I figured I could make friends with them before Sasha's rumors spread. I had a bit of success in that department. I fell in with a better crowd, at least. Sasha stuck with her same old click. It grew ever so slightly, but she was determined to live out the movie Mean Girls, and most people didn't pay her any mind. Space Girl barely changed at all. I didn't see her much when high school started. She was in a few of my classes, but I rarely saw her outside of them. Whenever she had a moment, she'd be in the library, usually working on her drawings in one of the corner cubicles. Sometimes, I thought about talking to her and trying to strike up a friendship, but it never felt right. Years had quietly passed, and I'd never forgotten the way I treated her, or that angry little poem she'd written. Sasha's bullying never let up, of course. She stalked Space Girl to the library, where she'd pull the same old shit she'd been pulling since the fifth grade. She'd leer over her cubicle and comment on her drawings, picking them apart just like she always had. I stopped her whenever I saw it, but I didn't always see it. Sasha confronted me once when I'd interrupted her. Usually she'd sneer and walk away. Tanya leered at me from behind her, chewing gum with her mouth open. Coming to her rescue again, huh, Jean? What's she ever done to you anyways? She's just minding her own business. Oh, what's she done to you, Dyke? Sasha leaned down over her cubicle and looked down at the notebook. Unicorns. Unicorns, unicorns. Fucking unicorns. When are you going to grow up, space girl? Hey, I told you to stop. I rounded the cubicle, and I saw Sasha recoil. For a moment, I saw a bit of fear in her eyes. It vanished quickly and was replaced with a familiar rage. Fine. Let's leave the happy couple to their alone time then. She pulled away from the cubicle and disappeared, with Tanya nipping at her heels like a faithful terrier. Space Girl remained hunched over her notebook, her long red hair spilling over her shoulders. She seemed impossibly still. I turned to leave. Thanks. I looked back at her and saw that she was looking at me. Um, you're welcome. Let me know if she bothers you again, all right? I will, but you're usually there anyways. Her voice was soft and low. I'd heard it before, but I don't remember her ever speaking directly to me. Yeah, well, it's just not right. She's such a child. One of these days she's going to have to grow up. Space Girl just nodded, looking over towards the library door, then back down at her notebook again. For a moment, I thought about asking her about what she was drawing. I thought about saying something else, but no, I didn't want to make her uncomfortable. I left her alone again. In 10th grade, I took art as an elective. I wasn't much of an artist, but I figured it would be an easy course. 
to the surprise of no one, Space Girl was there. She'd grown into her red hair as she got older, and had otherwise barely changed since the day I'd met her. She was as quiet as ever, although I couldn't help but notice that in art class, she seemed just a little bit happier. I actually asked her to work with me on the first group project of the semester. I think the prospect of being asked to work together was foreign to her. She looked at me suspiciously when I did it, but when she realized that this wasn't just another sick prank or attempt to harass her, she actually smiled. It was a slowly spreading smile that seemed just a little bit goofy, and it was the cutest thing I'd ever seen. I'd like that. The modest tone in her voice just cemented my own decision. I ended up going to her house that weekend to work on the project. We were supposed to take turns drawing portraits of each other, and I'd volunteer to let her draw me first. Rumors of her mother's sexuality had always surrounded Space Girl, so I wasn't entirely sure what to expect when I got there. I certainly wasn't expecting the quiet and neatly kept house that I found. Her mother was the one who answered the door, and she looked like an older version of her daughter, sans the Coke bottle glasses. You must be Jane. She wasn't smiling, but she didn't sound upset either. Yes, ma'am. Come on in. Megan's upstairs. She was just getting ready for you. The house was warm and cozy, with plenty of knickknacks on the walls. Plates and porcelain dolls, mostly. The living room looked more like a waiting room, and I spotted a few framed degrees on some of the walls. I'd later end up learning that their home was also an office. Space Girl's mother was a psychiatrist who worked out of her house. I was just about to bring some snacks upstairs, but Megan gets very focused when she's working. She doesn't like being bothered. Would you mind running them up for me? Sure thing. Her mother handed me a plate full of peanut butter cookies. Thanks. I'll be down here if you or Megan need anything. That sounded almost like a warning, and I wondered if her mom knew about the way I treated her daughter in the past. I didn't ask about it, and just quietly took the cookies upstairs. On the landing leading up to Space Girl's room, I could see a mural of family photos and paused to look at them. I could recognize Space Girl and her mother in most of them. Space Girl never seemed to be smiling, although her mother usually had a wide grin. I only saw her father in a few of the very early pictures. He was a gruff-looking man with glasses and a beard. Space Girl looked like she was only a young child in the few pictures I saw him in, though. I didn't dwell for long and headed towards what I assumed was her room. The cardboard stars and planets on the door gave it away. Sure enough, Megan was inside waiting for me. She sat facing the door behind an easel in the center of her room. Her bed was neatly made and tucked away in the corner. 
She had a clean little desk that she'd clearly been working on and had set a chair out for me to sit on. I hadn't expected something so overwhelmingly formal, and I almost started laughing. But then I noticed her walls. They weren't just covered in drawings. The art pieces on them were full-on paintings. They were the same fantasy depictions she usually did, but the colors were so vivid. The clouds looked like fluffy pillows, and the castles seemed great and infinite. There was something lonely about them, though. The subjects were always in the center, surrounded by a vast, colorful world that seemed so beautiful and yet so empty. Hey, holy shit, are these yours? They are. Space Girl stood up and took the plate of cookies from me and moved it to her desk. It... it's soothing. Painting, I mean. I pick the drawings I like the most, and I finish them. She spoke slowly, like she was carefully choosing her words. I almost felt like there was something that she was trying to avoid. I spotted a painting on the floor that looked like her father. The style was similar, although a little less refined. This looked like an older piece. I would figure she'd done it as a child, if not for the way her father looked in it. The look on his face was one of absolute terror. Even in that cruder format, it was impossible to mistake it for anything else. His eyes were wide, his mouth was open, and he looked like he was screaming. Space Girl looked down at it, and her brow furrowed in disapproval. She turned it around so I wouldn't have to see. We should get started. Sorry, I shouldn't have been talking. No, it's all right. I'd like to hear about it. Space Girl watched me from the corner of her eye for a moment, as if she doubted I was being serious. But eventually, she sat down behind the easel and started to draw. Soon after that, she was talking, too. I stayed long after she'd gotten what she needed for her sketch. I made her tell me about her art. She told me that she'd always liked fantasy, and how she liked unicorns because they were simple but pretty. I hung on to every word, and I could have sworn I saw her smiling shyly as she talked. The portrait she'd done of me was something else entirely. Her work had always been beautiful, but this made me look transcendent. I wasn't even entirely sure that I was looking at myself at first. There was something about the expression on my face. There was a small, almost content smile there. The warmth it conveyed was Disney-esque. I love it! That's incredible, Spade! Uh, Megan, that's really great! You can call me Space Girl if you want. I don't mind the nickname. Not as much as I mind the people, at least. My awe quickly turned to shame, but Space Girl didn't look upset. She just stared at me blankly like she so often did. No, not blankly. Her face might not have conveyed much, but there was definitely something there. I wish... 
I wish I'd been nicer to you when we were younger. Is that why you're here right now? No, I, I'm here for the assignment. I mean, the art assignment. The portraits. She continued to stare. Did you pick me because you felt bad for me? No, I just thought it would be cool to work with you. Okay. Her flat tone made it hard to know what she meant by that. She stood up and started cleaning up her supplies. Mom can drive you home if you need a ride. She didn't look at me. I opened my mouth to say something else. I wanted to apologize, but I didn't know what to say. Had I offended her? Had I said something wrong? All right. Thanks. It was the only thing I could think of. See you tomorrow. With that, I left her. I was almost afraid to see Space Girl the next morning. I drifted through my classes that day until I reached art. And when I did, I wasn't expecting what I saw. Space Girl had clearly been up late, but what she brought in stole my breath away. It was my portrait, but she'd done more with it than I'd thought possible. She'd painted over the sketch, turning me into something beautiful. Flowers bloomed around my brown hair, and a crown of daisies, lilies, and chrysanthemums adorned my head. The colors were so vivid, and I looked so at peace. Space Girl was looking right at me as I came in, as if she was gauging my reaction. But I simply didn't know how to react. All I could do was stare wide-eyed in awe. When I looked back at Space Girl, I saw that smile I'd come to love. Small and subdued, but so much bigger than it seemed. My portrait of her didn't turn out nearly as good, but Space Girls had not only netted us an A on the project, but got the privilege of being hung up outside of the art classroom. Of course, I told her how much I loved it, although I don't remember what words I used, nor if they were coherent. Whatever I said, Space Girl only listened with a small, knowing smile as her cheeks flushed red. And I remember thinking how pretty she looked when her blush matched her hair. My portrait was up for barely even a day before Sasha had to make a comment. I'd been on my lunch and had just gotten some fries from the cafeteria when she and Tanya ambushed me. Where's your flower crown, Dyke? Did she draw you like one of her French girls, too? Tanya snickered at that, even though it wasn't funny. Leave me alone. I tried brushing past them, but Sasha was out for blood. I always knew you were a little dyke, but now you've posted solid proof of it. We've gone and cracked the case, haven't we? So what happened? Did you go to her house and lick her retarded little snatch? He must be a real good dyke because she went and drew that for you. I tried to walk away from her, 
But Sasha and Tanya just kept following me. What's wrong? Am I not pretty enough for you, Dyke? Maybe she only fucks retarded girls. I bet Space Girl squealed like a pig when she came. I stopped dead in my tracks, and I heard Sasha stop behind me. I don't know what it was about what she'd said that pissed me off so much, but those two had finally struck a nerve. I spun around, swinging my lunch tray as hard as I could. Fries were scattered everywhere, but although I was aiming for Tanya, I hit Sasha. She went down hard, and I'm not sure if she was even still conscious when she hit the ground. Tanya was on me in an instant. She slammed me back against a wall and kept me pinned. She had size and strength on me, and there wasn't a thing I could do to stop her. What the fuck? Several other students grabbed at us. A teacher finally got involved, and all three of us were escorted to see the principal. As we left the cafeteria, I saw Space Girl in one of the halls, just staring at me. Naturally, I got three-day suspension, but Tanya and Sasha were fine. Both of them said they'd just been walking and I attacked unprovoked. It was their word against mine. Sasha had a familiar shit-eating grin on as she left the office, with only a bruise on her forehead to show for her troubles. But there was a familiar look in her eyes. That same anger I'd seen the last time I'd laid a hand on her— and it scared me just as much as it had the last time I'd seen it. When I came back to school, I realized that I had every reason to be afraid. My portrait was missing. I wondered if they'd taken it down because I'd attacked Sasha, but the truth was a lot worse. Someone took it. Space Girl was sitting in her usual spot in the library when I found her, sketching flowers in her notebook. When? The day after you hit Sasha. I don't think anyone's found it yet. She didn't look up at me, just stayed focused on her art. She didn't need to say it for me to know who she blamed. Who else would it be? Though she didn't show it, I could tell from the thick, aggressive lines in her sketch that the theft had gotten to her. She'd been proud of that portrait. She'd put so much work into it, and now Sasha had taken that too, just like she'd taken and ruined everything else. I had half a mind to confront Sasha about it, but I didn't know if that would be a good idea or not. Sasha could easily just cry wolf. I wouldn't put it past her. I probably would have just left it alone. But Sasha wasn't done yet. No. She'd been good and pissed off at me for years, and she finally was ready to do something about it. I should have known she would. About an hour later, when I was headed to art class, the painting was back. But there had been some modifications made to it. The words, retard fucking dyke, had been crudely painted across my portrait in bright red. I saw it from down the hall, I could see some other students whispering amongst themselves beneath it. I didn't know what to say or do, but this felt like too much. The picture was taken down quickly, 
but the damage was done. Sasha had gotten her revenge, and it didn't stop with just the painting. Space Girl looked different than when I'd seen her in the library. She seemed uneasy, and her eyes were red like she'd been crying. I'm sorry about the painting. She looked at me before sighing. I knew she'd do something like that. I'm so used to it by now that it doesn't bother me anymore. I'm sorry she wrote those things about you, though. But you worked hard on that. I'd be upset, too. She just shook her head. (laughs) That's not it. She reached into her pocket, pulling out a crumpled up piece of paper, then slid it over to me. Slowly, I opened the paper, and my eyes widened as I recognized what was on it. It wasn't the same drawing, but it was close enough. It was a depiction of Space Girl hanging herself, and this time, I was there beside her. A caption read, Retard Dyke Wedding. There were so many in my locker. She slid them through the cracks. I don't know how many. This is what she drew in your notebook. When I returned it to you, this is what I had to take out. Space Girl looked down at the picture again before averting her eyes. As class started, I jammed the drawing into my pocket so I could throw it away later. Space Girl didn't pay much attention during class. Instead of taking notes, she sketched in her notebook. I looked over a few times to see her drawing another unicorn. This one seemed so similar to the prints I'd seen before. She must not have been quite happy with it, though. When I looked back at her notebook, the unicorn wasn't there anymore. She must have erased it. But it seemed so clean. Like it hadn't been there in the first place. I remember seeing Tanya give me a shit-eating smirk in the hall near the end of the day, and when I started my walk home, I noticed that Tanya was following me. It was hard to say for sure at first, but as I got further away from the school, I realized that she was doing it deliberately. I didn't know what she had in mind, but I didn't want to put up with it. When I was in the middle of a small walking path that cut behind some of the houses on my street, I stopped and looked at Tanya as she kept approaching. What do you want? Just seeing where you go. I was wondering if you were just fucking Space Girl, or if you did a whole tour of all the retarded girls in town. She was avoiding the question. Very funny. What are you really up to? Tanya continued to smile at me. It's a surprise. Sasha and I just want you to know how much we love dykes in this town. Oops, I've said too much. I wanted to hit her. Dear God, I just wanted to hit her. But we both knew she could overpower me. I didn't want to go home either. Whatever Tanya had in mind, it wasn't anything good. 
She drew closer to me, unafraid of anything I'd do. Come on, Dyke. Go home. Let's go check out your surprise. In a sudden, horrible moment, I realized that Tanya was threatening me. I also realized that I couldn't outrun her. I couldn't fight her off. I didn't really have much of a choice but to do as she asked. Slowly, I turned and walked towards my house, with Tanya at my heels. It wasn't far, and up ahead I could see Sasha sitting on a park bench. From a distance, I recognized the red gas can beside her, and I stopped dead in my tracks. What the fuck are you... Tanya seized me by the arm and dragged me towards the bench. What the fuck? Sasha just watched with a wide, manic grin. Hey, Eugene. How's it going? What the fuck is this? Just wanted to chat. You think you can get away with pulling that shit you did the other day? No. You've been treating me like garbage for years. And for what? Because of Space Girl? You know who you're fucking choosing, right? Right? She sighed in frustration. Oh, God, I hate that retard. But you know what? I hate you even more. Acting like you're better than me just because you feel bad for her. You're crazy. Sasha just laughed. <laughs> I'm not the one who clocked someone with a fucking tray just for a little bit of teasing. You're absolutely fucking psycho. On the bench behind her, I saw the portrait that Space Girl had painted of me. Sasha picked it up and tossed it in front of me, then picked up the gas can and dumped it onto the canvas. You want to be a dyke? I don't care. But I'm not letting you and your retarded whore put your shit up. So say goodbye to your little project, slut. Sasha reached into her pocket and took out a book of matches. Her grin widened, before suddenly vanishing outright as she looked at something behind us. Holy shit! I craned my neck to try and see what they were seeing. As for believing it... That was another story entirely. Standing on the path behind us was a unicorn, although there was something very wrong with it. This looked nothing like a regular horse. Its body was plain white and almost textureless, save for the many thin blue lines that ran along its body. It looked like it had been cut out from a sheet of lined paper, but... Neatly done gray lines define the shape of the horse. In fact, it looked exactly like one of the unicorns Space Girl drew. It almost looked as if it had walked out of one of her notebooks. Tanya let go of me and stumbled back a few steps, eyes wide as she stared at the advancing unicorn. Its tail swished violently back and forth. Its ears seemed to be pressed to its head. She panicked and tried to run. In her desperation to escape, she bolted down the path. But she couldn't outrun the paper unicorn. 
It lowered its head as it drew nearer to her, and in one swift moment, the horn pierced Tanya's back, impaling her straight through the chest. She screamed as she was hoisted off the ground, and the unicorn circled back to fix Sasha with a murderous glare. Tanya looked down at the massive spikes sticking out of her, eyes wide with horror, and her body twitching its last spasms as the life quickly drained from her. The unicorn lowered its head to let her slide off its horn, and she hit the ground in a bundle of limbs. Sasha and I stared in silent terror as the unicorn reared up on its hind legs and brought its hooves down upon Tanya's body. She didn't scream. She didn't fight. She simply lay there as she was trampled again and again. I can only hope she died quickly. Sasha dropped the unlit match and took a slow, terrified step back before toppling over. I stumbled back and looked down to see the portrait of me at her feet. But it had changed. That beautifully painted version of me was now leaning out of the canvas, invading the real world and clutching Sasha's leg tightly. Still with that look of contentment on her face, I watched as the painted version of me slowly slipped back into her painting, and she took Sasha's leg with her. Fuck! 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 Sasha desperately swatted at the painted me, but she couldn't overpower it. She couldn't escape. Her nails tried to dig into the pavement as she was slowly dragged into the canvas. She looked at me in horror, silent begging for me to help. But all I could do was stare back at her in silence. Jane! Jane, help! Please! Oh God! Jane! Jane! The hands of the painted me reached up, seizing Sasha by the hair and forcing her down into the canvas. It was like watching something pull her underwater. One minute she was there, the next she was gone. I stood silent in the park, staring at the painting, then at the paper unicorn. The unicorn huffed before retreating off into the woods, and then I was alone. Slowly, I approached the painting and looked down at it. It had changed. The writing was gone. The art style was the same. But I was no longer the subject. Now it only depicted Sasha as she reached out for help, with her mouth open in an eternal scream of terror. After some hesitation, I picked up the painting. I could return it to Space Girl in the morning. They chalked Tanya's death up to an animal attack, and nobody ever found Sasha. Rumors of her getting kidnapped or knocked up and running away were the most popular ones. They were whispered between students for the rest of 10th grade, but in the end, they petered out. There was a simple memorial service and a picture in the yearbook before Sasha and Tanya were cast into the back of everyone's memories, just like Mike, Brian, and James had been all those years before. I never asked Space Girl about what I saw that day. I don't know if she even would be able to explain it, although she certainly knew much more than I did. Whatever she'd done, 
Whatever she had the ability to do, it wasn't my place to ask about it. High school was ten years ago, though, and I've chosen not to remember much of it. I'm a different person now, and so much has changed. I've got my own life to live now, and I try not to question the things that I shouldn't. Sometimes I see paintings move, but when they do, I don't bother with a second glance, and I never ask my wife about them. She doesn't like to talk about it, and I won't ever force her. She has her secrets, but that doesn't change how much I love her. The painting of Sasha hangs in her studio at home, right beside the painting of her father. Sometimes, I look at it and I wonder if maybe things could have been different. But I don't feel too guilty about it. I wouldn't feel too guilty if I heard another story about a suspicious trampling or animal attack either. But to my knowledge, there's been nothing of the sort. Megan is calmer when she's with me. I think that's part of why we ended up together. I guess I shouldn't be too surprised. I do what I can to make sure that nobody ever hurts my beautiful space girl. joining us on our journey down the lost highway. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mykolski, Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. I'm your host and executive producer, David Cummings. Please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for listening and for being a supportive Season Pass member. As the darkness fades, it feels like you're going to dream This audio production is copyright 2020 by Creative Reason Media Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media 